It is your buddy and your pal, Ouch, back again with what you've been watching the movie review show because it is so much easier than video games. Like, honestly, anymore, one video game is about five movies in terms of time taken up, story, length, plot. It's the only reason why you don't hear the other show too much anymore, just because. To do, like, a full review of a video game, how long do you gotta put in? I'm kind of just arbitrarily telling myself 10 hours, and that's based off of nothing. So, hopefully, maybe one of these days that'll come back. It'll be a really thing, but today we are back again. What you've been watching the movie show. Today's theme, I like to call License to Shill. These are movies that you that would use a popular IP license character, what have you, and just drove it into the ground. Or it just happened one time and then never again. We have some great interesting ones. We have the 70s being represented with Viva Knievel. We have the 90s being represented with Super Mario Brothers. And we have late 70s into the 80s being represented with one of my favorites, the Star Wars Holiday Special. So without any further ado, let's get right into it and talk about what you've been watching. You know, everything you see with the entertainment genre, no matter the medium, is just all of us chasing fame. Maladjusted human beings craving for the adoration of complete strangers by doing something they're kind of good at? For me, I knew my old career of entertaining zoo animals was over once I saw the videos of magicians doing card tricks through the glass of the orangutan pit. Apparently a song and dance in front of the penguin experience just isn't good enough to get the dodo to feature you anymore. But while my case went unknown to the masses, one man in the 70s took the country by storm, performing daredevil stunts across the nation. His fame and popularity was somehow able to garner him this movie, which went kinda completely forgotten, mostly because he beat a promoter into a coma with a baseball bat three months after the film's release. That's right, it's time to dive into the in-depth world of motorcycle jumping in Viva Knievel. Released in 1977, starring Evil Knievel, Gene Kelly, Red Buttons, and Leslie Nielsen, Viva Knievel is pretty much what you would expect from a movie starring a self-made Jumpman. Nowadays, pretty much any event sponsored by Monster Energy has motorcycle jumps by teenagers that are basically twice the length and three times as high as any of Evil's jumps, but back in the 70s, there was only one man, dripping in Americana, brave enough to handle the dangerous levels of stunts he just kinda made up. Seriously, his jumps have that level of ridiculousness that they almost sound like the really weird Guinness World Records people make up, but you still kinda wanna see them. Most bubbles blown with a live tarantula in their mouth, 
You, sir, have my interest. The first half of the movie could really be just any moment before a stunt, with Evil talking to the media, negotiating his fee, pretending his wife and kids don't exist so he can make out with Kate Morgan at the end of the film. Morgan plays a reporter-slash-photographer who is just so unimpressed with the whole jumping thing, basically just being a troll to Evil. In order to impress her, Evil gives her a ride around the stadium where the first jump is being held, riding up steps, down steps, through areas. It's kind of hard to make this part sound thrilling, unless you count the parts where they come really close to wiping out on the flat pavement. The day of the jump comes, with Evil attempting to jump over a cage filled with lions that are mostly traumatized by loud motorcycle noises. Evil clears the cage, doesn't quite land the jump, is slightly damaged, and spends some time in the hospital. About halfway through, the plot actually starts. While recovering in the hospital, Evil gets an offer from Nielsen, who is another promoter, I guess? Honestly, it's not clear what Nielsen is besides evil, as in not good. You could assume he's some kind of drug kingpin, as the plan is as intricate as it is kinda stupid. He offers Knievel big money to do a jump down in Mexico, but he has a plan to murder Knievel by setting up his bike to explode killing Knievel. Then, in the duplicate of Evil's tour buses he's built from the ground up, he's smuggling tons of drugs hidden in the walls. So when they cross the borderline to bring back Knievel's body to the states, they are taking all of the drugs with them with no one the wiser. This seems like it's one of those plans that cost two million dollars to make one million dollars. There must have been a more subtle way than killing the most popular stuntman who everyone knows about and would hear the story of his death. The only person who thinks something is a foul is Gene Kelly, who plays Evil's top mechanic and top alcoholic. Before you judge, think about how you would feel when your estranged son who you blame for the death of your wife during childbirth, decides to just start hanging around your traveling carny show, all while taking a shine to the main star. That's enough for any man to hit the bottle. Nielsen catches on to Kelly's catching on, and puts him in a mental institution for drug addicts, which is located in Mexico, but only takes Americans for some reason. Knievel can't believe it, but does just leave him there until he can figure something out. Which is kinda weird, because there's no real relation between Nielsen and Kelly, but they somehow won't release him back to evil? This feels like it should be some kind of logic problem. If you can put anyone in a mental institution for no reason, you should be able to take anyone out for any reason? Now, let's take a moment to introduce Jesse. In story terms, He's an up-and-coming stunt jumper who kinda does the same thing Evil does, albeit in different territories. They do mention some kind of ranking for stuntmen, which I bet not even DraftKings would waste the bandwidth to keep that up to date. But in movie terms, it's that thing I always love, where the movie goes, 
and introducing the next bright star in Hollywood. And then you never hear from them again. I think it's hilarious when the next big thing is literally the last name introduced in the opening credits. Jesse basically gets bribed by Nielsen to play on his team, so to speak. His big gift to Jesse is the Stratocycle. Basically, imagine one of the motorcycles that the Power Rangers would ride, but before adding the decals that make it look like a bear or whatever. Jesse gets jealous when he overhears Nielsen pinning all of his hopes on Knievel making this doomed Mexico jump. So Jesse goes to the start point of the jump, which is in this weird little shack assembled directly on the grandstand's racing grounds, clobbers evil with a helmet, steals a matching USA-themed jumpsuit, and takes the jump over the hot pit of coals. The rigged bike explodes, Jesse is killed, there's panic everywhere, and Nielsen immediately wants the photographer who doesn't really care to be there and the kid with daddy issues taken hostage. Look, I wear glasses, and even then I have terrible eyesight. So there is no way Nielsen, from the rich man's private box, would even be able to recognize, let alone pinpoint the location of the allies of our main hero across a packed stadium on ground level when there's a panic craze going on. This basically kicks off the ending stretch, which is just that stereotypical male fantasy, crash through the doors of an insane asylum on a motorcycle you've never ridden, bust your friend out of rehab, chase after the long haul trucks that have your friends kidnapped inside, speed through the smallest Mexican village possible, climb on top of a steep beating bus filled with cocaine, and save the day. You know that cliche. It's fine for what it is, but it was the 70s, they could only do so much. It's no Fast and the Furious, it's not even Fast and the Furious, um, 4. 4 Fast, 4 Furious. Okay look, I've never seen those movies, I just wanted to make that joke. Overall, Viva Knievel is another one of those time capsule movies, movies you could only make at that point in time and highlighting one certain star. Now, since it was the 70s, it gets a bit of a buff, so to speak, because you cannot compare it to today, where you can immediately follow your favorite anything on Twitter and Instagram and see what they're up to every day. If you were lucky, you would hear about Evil Knievel maybe once, maybe twice a year, and even then, no matter if he made the jump or crashed and burned, you were pleased with the result. Movie-wise, how much can you really expect with a stuntman being the lead role? Although I do think it's funny that the entire movie is about this super famous motorcycle jumper, and yet all he does is crash. It's hilarious. Plus, the weirdest casting decision might just go to Leslie Nielsen being the main antagonist. I mean, he plays it pretty much straight, like all of his comedic roles, except the punchline never happens. But this was an attempted cash grab, trying to hit on the fame of a person, which kinda quickly ended when that famous person beat a dude into a coma with a baseball bat. Uh, shades of grey, I guess. So, Super Mario Brothers. I'm not going to insult your intelligence and do some kind of cutesy intro, as if you didn't know who they were or act like you have no idea what IP I was talking about. It's freaking Mario. He wears red, 
he goes on adventures and is somehow good at everything he tries, throwing the 10,000 hour theory into the garbage. But there was this period of time called the early 90s where we took things and made them too literal. For some reason, we took the idea of Italian plumber and thought this would be great for kids. Even though, even in the games, the plumber storyline was practically gone, it was probably more in the cartoons than anything else, but we can probably blame Lou Albano for that. But there was one example of full-grown adults not understanding how kids' stuff worked and decide to turn it into an attempted franchise, mostly by throwing it completely off the rails until no one could recognize it anymore. Yes, folks, in this segment, we're talking about the Super Mario Brothers, the movie. Super Mario Brothers, released in 1993, directed by Annabelle Jenkin and Rocky Morton, written by Parker Bennett, Terry Runt, and Ed Sullivan, starring Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, and Dennis Hopper. According to IMDb, this movie was complete chaos on set. The actors blame the directors for their controlling behavior and constant rewrites, the directors blame the studio for constantly trying to change the film to a family-friendly vibe when they claimed everyone wanted the mature theming. Probably not true, coming from a kid's game. Hoskins and Leguizamo took to drinking on set as a way to cope. Hoskins broke a finger from his hand getting slammed in a van door, among other injuries. Leguizamo broke his leg from getting hit by a car. There was a stunt featuring a mattress sliding out of a chute that, if something messed up, was a 25-foot fall onto concrete. I'm not even into the movie yet, and I'm already clenching into my chair. At an estimated $48 million budget, and only earning about half back domestically, this flop kind of put the kibosh on any other Nintendo-based movies until Detective Pikachu. When Ryan Reynolds can bring something back, you know your version messed it up. Keeping with the lore, Mario and Luigi, Hoskins and Leguizamo, are Italian plumbers living in Brooklyn. It's that weird era where we think Mario is straight out of a stereotype playbook, mostly coming from the cartoons and a few of the games, so we get stuck with a very gruff, not-so-charming Mario Brothers. Even though they aren't really brothers, they try to set up that they're like adopted family or partners, whatever family means to you. They come across Daisy, who is leading an archaeological dig site for dinosaur bones, being threatened by some hotshot landowner. If you didn't have the predisposition that King Koopa was the main villain, you would think this guy was the baddie, but I haven't even looked up what his name was which should tell you how important he is to the movie. Daisy gets kidnapped by some gangsters and taken to another dimension with the Mario Brothers chasing after her. I just saved you about 25 minutes of the movie with no video game references, so be grateful. The bros are warped into Dinotopia, which sounds like a great adventure-y kind of place, but it looks more like a Blade Runner knockoff with neon sign for bullet bills, which is about the closest thing of a reference you're going to get. There's a bit of a weird aesthetic, I guess you could call it outlandish, yet it doesn't really fit in with any Mario World set piece. 
The most I could really shoehorn in would be how all of the cars kinda look like the dragster hot rog Wario drives in Mario Kart, but that's about it. Now, for a place called Dinotopia, it really doesn't have any dinosaurs walking around, just a bunch of assholes. Granted, that's probably no different than the real New York City, but I'm being judgmental. Dinotopia is run by King Koopa, played by Hopper, who is running for re-election, which is kind of strange coming from a king. Although he does seem to be running on a technology and science-based platform, as he has the technology to evolve dinosaurs into humans and devolve humans into dinosaurs. Although he only seems to stop at their heads, thus creating the Goombas. Yes, the dinosaur-headed, seemingly seven-foot-tall Goombas that everyone knows and loves. So Koopa was the one calling the shots to kidnap Daisy, as she keeps a stone that is actually a piece of the meteorite that hit the Earth, not causing the extinction of the dinosaurs, just the splitting of dimensions. You get the stones back together, the dimensions get back together, with Koopa in charge of everything. I'm not sure if that's after the third ghost house, or if that's the secret exit in stage 4-2, but we all know you are gonna need the Tanuki suit after that spike pit. Whoo! Boy, that jump is impossible to make. The movie then bounces back and forth from the Mario Brothers story of chasing after this missing rock to Daisy, who's been kidnapped by Koopa. Which is really tough because I want to call him Bowser, but the movie never says it. It's Koopa all the time. Storyline-wise, they try to act like Daisy is the missing key to the whole plot, with Koopa saying along the lines of, You never really belonged in that world, did you? acting like Daisy is from this dino dimension. Except for like one scene at the very beginning when a baby is being left in some place. It really does not lay the groundwork for that plot point. We only ever see her as a college dinosaur bone inspector. I don't remember what degree that would be, but that's what she is. There's no revealing she has a forked tongue or her laying on a heat rock for temperature regulation. She's just a chick who carries a rock around her neck. This is what happens when nobody reads the rewrites. The other only notable note from the Daisy scenes are from the royal pet Yoshi. The highly detailed, run by nine operators, $500,000 robot Yoshi. See, this is what happened when Jurassic Park took over. Everyone had to get a robot dinosaur for their movie. It's an impressive puppet, don't get me wrong, but it's in the movie for like a combined total of maybe five minutes. Look, if my production company had to build a half million dollar toy raptor, that thing immediately is becoming the co-star. That thing is bouncing off of the walls, it's running a golf cart through a group of bad guys, and it's being voiced by Gilbert Gottfried. If not Gilbert, Bobcat Goldwaith. Doesn't matter if he saves the day or not, we need some energy in this picture. On the flip side, the Mario Brothers are going through their usual adventure shenanigans, working their way back to the main boss's hideout. But throughout the movie, whenever they are about to lose a life, they get saved by what the movie calls a fungus, which will stretch like taffy to catch them, will bounce them like a trampoline, and is constantly giving them power-ups. 
This comes from the almost too literal point from the Mushroom Kingdom and or King Toadstool storyline from the games, where the fungus is actually kind of gross. There's even a scene when the brothers reunite with Daisy, who introduces them to her father, King Toadstool, who has been devolved by Koopa into just a disgusting lump pile hanging from the ceiling. Like, get some Lotrimin on that thing, stat. Okay, so the ending becomes a bit chunky, yet somehow a thousand things are all happening at once, so stick with me on this one. Koopa and Mario are having their big fight, albeit without a lot of jumping on top of Koopa or shell throwing. Just Koopa shooting a flamethrower at Mario. Koopa also develops his devolve ray to fit into super scopes, which could be a fun wink and nod to the SNES, but honestly, it could have been the cheapest gun props they could find. You never know with this movie. But Luigi finally uses an actual in-game item, the Babomb which I will argue should be B-B-O-M-B, not B-O-M-O-M-B. I hate that spelling. But two points. The game has bombs about the size of Mario's head, but in this movie, it could have been inside a capsule toy machine in front of the supermarket. And two, this thing takes so painfully long to walk to its basically arbitrary location which Koopa happens to be directly on top of, and then go off. No timer, no wick, no real clues. It was just assumably on Mario's side. They devolve Koopa into a puddle of goo, and Daisy somehow takes over the land. Stuff gets lost real easily in this movie. Until one day she comes back to Brooklyn in the setting up of a sequel scene, holding a machine gun and covered in bandoliers filled with bullet bills. And that was Super Mario Brothers. Oh man, how do you even wrap up a movie like this? I mean, this was the weirdest use of the Mario franchise. I would say even weirder than the CDI games. Maybe the source material at the time was only Super Mario World on the SNES, but talk about missing the mark on practically every level. Visuals, characters, music, themes, there are just no nods to the previous media, games or otherwise. I was thinking to myself, if they took away the Mario IP, and maybe just kinda kept the same story, changing the names and stuff like that, would this movie work? With piss-poor management behind the scenes, probably not. This is a bold claim, but if they kept it as a kid's movie, and maybe tried to make it a bit brighter and goofier, this could have sat on the same level of kids' films as like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or maybe even Space Jam. I see a reference every now and again online, acting like this is a cult classic, but I really don't see any redeeming qualities to it like that. If you're curious, give it a watch, but you are free to stop watching at any time. And finally, on this episode, we have the Star Wars Holiday Special. This is just one of the goofiest things I've ever seen, and I am grateful for it. 
thanks to some nerds with the right kind of Betamax recorder, a special that was clearly designed to be lost to time can now live on forever and ever. This has almost become a required Christmas viewing for me, almost as important as the It's a Wonderful Life drinking game. So grab yourself a cup of blue milk nog and let's chat about the Star Wars Holiday Special. The Star Wars Holiday Special, airing only once on November 17th, 1978, was not handled by George Lucas, but a team of writers and directors at CBS Television, including the most notable name, Bruce Valanche, if you were a fan of the Hollywood Squares in the mid-90s. You have a little bit of the traditional cast, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, making cameos. You have some segments and bits from guest stars Art Carney, Harvey Corman, and B. Arthur. But then you have the real stars of the show, Chewbacca's family. Although the idea of centering the special on all Wookiees, aka the fur bags that growl instead of speak without any subtitles, that was all Lucas's idea, and he would not budge. The special would go on to be panned across the board, being called the worst two hours of television ever, which is impressive considering how much pro wrestling has been on TV since then. The show begins with Mala, Chewie's wife, Itchy, Chewie's dad, and Lumpy, Chewie's son, all waiting for Chewbacca to make it back home in time for Life Day. And I already have to stop and complain about something. It took me an extra viewing or two to realize, oh, they're going by the nickname rule. You know, Chewbacca's nickname is Chewie, so they went with the cuter ones. That makes more sense. Not that it makes any kind of sense. I mean, Itchy and Lumpy as names are more insulting names for diseased dogs than these space fantasy characters. Now, apparently, they do have full names, which are Malatabuck, Atichikuk, and Lumparwarump. Goddamn the stupidity in this makes my head hurt already. To entertain Lumpy, Itchy puts on the first segment the strangest virtual circus possible. Honestly, Cirque du Soleil saw this and said, Oh, we have our next show! Now, it's a pretty basic sideshow fair. Some jugglers, some acrobats, impressive by 1970s standards? Maybe? But the fact that they are all in strange, brightly colored, hairy fish bodysuits led by a Keebler elf in full-body neon green spandex with one giant leather boot and a vuvuzela makes you wonder about entertainment a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. After a quick visit from Luke Skywalker, whose tan is about the same color as the orange jumpsuit he's wearing, we head into our next guest, Art Carney, playing a shopkeeper on Kashyyyk. He talks with an off-duty Imperial officer, and certainly says some lines of dialogue. This is where the lousiness of the special starts creeping in, mostly because nothing Carney says is funny. Hell, I can't even tell if there are jokes in his words, or if they thought that saying something in a funny way was good enough. Well, get used to it. 
He's the wacky sitcom neighbor in this thing. You're gonna see him about 12 more times. Oh yeah, there's some kind of holiday happening during all this, with Mala turning on some kind of a cooking show. Except this cooking show is hosted by Harvey Corman in drag and blackface doing a Julia Childs impression. Oh man, whatever streaming package this show is lumped in with, I'm canceling that sub immediately. Corman has maybe one step above Carney in the energy and performance levels, but it's still not funny, with even an audible thud after every punchline. So the family is getting really worried Chewie's not back yet, what with all the Imperial checkpoints and blockades and whatnot. But to cheer everyone up, Art Carney comes bearing gifts. Mala and Lumpy's gift will come into play later in the special, but Itchy's gift is a proton pack for the Mind Evaporator. I say that like you know what I'm talking about, but it's just a segue into our next bit, Diane Carroll as some kind of singing bot program. Aside from the fact that her costume looked like silk and aluminum foil made a baby, this song just takes forever. And when the lyrics are, this minute, now, it's just screwing with you. And uh, judging by his reactions, it's screwing with Itchy as well, if you know what I mean. I, I mean sex. You guys get that, right? Right around this time, there's finally an injection of drama into the special as the house is invaded for stormtroopers looking for Chewbacca. Aside from the leader of the Imperials doing this weird, character-specific commanding snap, they do the usual things secret police do. Terrorize innocents, ransack homes, destroy belongings. You watch the news, you get the idea. Carney tries to buy some time by distracting an officer with Mala's gift, this diorama-esque music box that plays a performance from Jefferson's Starship. It's fine. It's about the only current day, 78, thing in the entire show. And there's at least some actual electric guitar. The stormtroopers are still waiting around, so they try and tell the family to do their family things, which has Lumpy watching an animated adventure. Now, apparently, this animated part is the most highly praised segment in the entire special, to which I reply with, This was produced by the same animation company that would later do the two Saturday morning cartoons for Star Wars, Droids, and Ewoks. This is also the 100% true debut of Boba Fett. And yet, this is still too goofy, even for this special. I mean, Han Solo's face is mostly nose and chin. That's it. And Fett doesn't even do much of anything here either. He takes Chewie into town, talks to Darth Vader, and then escapes. Can we just get over the fact Boba Fett's fandom is completely misplaced for what he actually does? His trap for the rebels was a fancy dinner. Not exactly Dog the Bounty Hunter there. After the guards are done ransacking Lumpy's room, Lumpy starts to build his gift from Santa Carney a do-it-yourself message transmitter whatever thingy. Listen, future technology, it just works. 
to help Lumpy piece it all together, there's another hilarious bit featuring Harvey Corman, this time as a constantly malfunctioning android. Again, not a lot of punchlines, just some more wacky Lucas-style editing where Corman looks fairly silly. Pretty much the least notable segment in the entire thing. Not funny, time-consuming, get on with it. Apropos to nothing in the main storyline, we then switch over to probably the same cantina on Miles Eisley from the movie, and it's time for B. Arthur to shine. Arthur is the barkeep, encouraging everyone to keep drinking in a real show of responsibility. There are the aliens you never see again, who cares? Harvey Corman, three times? Three different characters? Who keeps letting him into the studio? comes in as an alien with a hole on top of his head where he pours drinks into. Uh, just putting that out there. It all leads to a rousing musical number where B. Arthur dances with Greedo and leads all of the drunks out of the bar like the Pied Piper. Although literally one Patreon was just a giant rat puppet stuck in the wall. It's really hard to top a Golden Girl musical number so we're going to 1.5 speed the rest of the special. Lumpy tricks the Imperials to leave, sends one trooper to keep guard. Han Solo and Chewie arrive, throw the trooper off the balcony of the house, which is about as high off the ground as the Jetsons' house is. By the way, happy Life Day, everyone. Harrison Ford practically phones in every single line like there's five minutes left until the bell. All the Wookiees grab a light-up snow globe, wear red robes, and start walking into some star like a cult meeting place. Han, Leah, Luke, C-3PO, and R2-D2 show up out of thin air, with an especially coked-up Carrie Fisher singing one last song, while Chewie flashes back to the entertaining moments from the movie, which was actually good. While the scene fades, trying to remind you about goodwill towards man or some bullshit. And that was the Star Wars Holiday Special. The first time I watched this, I wondered, like anyone would, what the hell is going on? But it finally clicked with a few clues from the commercials stuck with the special. It was the late 70s, a period of time completely devoid of actual entertainment. There was such a lack of star power, they had to lump several stars into one show and tried to fill it with as much content as they could so that there was something for everyone. And thus, the variety show was born. This was an attempted variety show with no studio audience, making for a very, very weird TV special. The only other thing I want to mention is, since practically every version of this show is a bootleg version, there will always be chunks of commercials, keeping this to a two-hour watch at all times. This is a little bit of comparing it to today, which I know is unfair to do, but I just have to point it out. In this special from 1978, there's not one, but two commercials for pantyhose throughout the thing. Again, the target markets of today and the 78 are probably going to be different, but but really? Two opposing pantyhose companies thought something called the Star Wars Holiday Special was going to be perfect for their product? 
It's one of those things where the equation doesn't make sense, but I love this show. Despite the fact there is literally not a good moment at all in the entire thing. No, the animated part doesn't count. It's not funny. The story focusing on the species that doesn't know English is ridiculous. The characters we actually do like are barely in the show. The guest stars that are in the show feel so out of place. There's no way you can tell me Art Carney understood any of the lines he was saying. But somehow, the amount of incompetence rolls together into a ball of unintended comedy that you really have to see to believe. Rift Tracks offers a version of it complete with MST 3K commentary over it, but do what you gotta do to see this special. This has been an Ouchcast Productions presentation. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JustOuch, capital J-U-S-T, capital A-E-W-C-H. Check us out over at anchor.fm slash ouch. Leave a voice message and maybe you'll hear it in a future episode. Don't forget, this show is also available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Just search The Ouchcast. Anything else? Email us, ouch64 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.